Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear from our foreign correspondent, Joe Barnes, who was at the scene in Kherson when President Zelensky visited the liberated city just yesterday. And we speak to freelance journalist Gabriela Yuzhviak, who's been looking at the impact of the invasion on the children of Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 15th of November, day 265. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and our guest today is freelance journalist Gabriela Yuzhviak. Just before we start, a note from me. While we were recording, we know that Russia unleashed a massive missile strike across much of Ukraine. We got the details as we were live, so you'll hear us update them as they come through. I started by asking Dom for the latest from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been fairly busy today in Ukraine. As of about five minutes ago, we're told the air raid alarm is going off uh, over Kyiv city. And we think elsewhere, certainly around Kyiv uh, uh, Oblast and elsewhere around the country, it looks like Russia after a pause. We haven't talked recently about the attacks on critical national infrastructure, these missile attacks from Russia. There seemed to have been a bit of a pause. Maybe that was tied to US midterms. Maybe there was too, too much I know, staff bandwidth taken up from Russia with the withdrawal from Herzon, we don't know. But anyway, it's, it seems to be seems to have started again in the last few minutes. Other than that, um, Herzon is still the big still the big uh, story. We're going to hear a lot more about that soon from um, from Joe, who's actually who's been down there brilliantly. Um, however, I was in a, a background brief this morning with a Western official, and I'll just I'll just zap through the um, some of the sort of points that were made there. As ever, you know, I'm not going to say who this individual was. That's not. That's not the terms of the deal. Um, you you trust me or you don't trust me that um, uh, that what I'm saying is correct. I happen to trust the individual who spoke to me, but you know it, it's up to you to believe me or not. Um, but he, he, this this person reiterated the points that we were making yesterday 
uh, this person's view was also similar to ours, that the Russian withdrawal from Hezon was in good order. Their words were good order. They say about 20,000 Russians were withdrawn and they put it in the tens rather than the hundreds of vehicles left behind uh, with, with no evidence that personnel were abandoned or deliberately left behind in, in any great numbers. There'll probably be onesies and twosies, but no formed units trying to put up a, a resistance or to stay behind for the anticipated visit of, of the president, for example. So that, that didn't seem to happen. There has been only a limited backlash from Russian society. Again, as we mentioned yesterday, there's the, a lot of the framing here, if you put it in terms of um, a glorious glorious defeat, that, that goes down better, actually, than, than, a, than a withdrawal and a rout. Um, and uh, again, another point that we made made yesterday, the, the Western official was agreeing that what this the withdrawal showed, and their quote, a slightly more realistic operational design, i.e. the military leaders knew what they were doing, um, put together a decent plan, sold it to the politicians. And that that bit is always tricky in any uh, in any system but you can imagine what it's like in this uh, russian system so getting putin to agree to that to agree to withdrawing forces out of that very symbolic and geographically strategically important um, city of Herzon uh, would have been tricky but they, they they managed it so quite what that means as in what else was it nested in to say all right mr president we're going to pull out of this city here however this is this is the plan going on from now so as i made the point yesterday that it that it might be well, it's not in Ukraine's favour if there's a, an outbreak of common sense and decent military analysis and um, an activity in in Russian senior command. But, you know, a conversation for another day, I'm sure. Um, it, it looks as if so. the, the, the assessment by the, the Western official was that about 50 percent of, of Russia's withdrawn forces um, will be slash have been moved to other fronts, particularly the in the centre of the Donbass. And I asked him if that mean does that mean that that the defences are good, these crocodile teeth and, and trenches and other bits and pieces that we've seen going in on the South Bank. Does that mean that Russia has such faith in those fixed geographic defences for all the reasons we talked about a few days ago? And we will talk about again that there's no point just having geographically fixed areas. You have to cover them with surveillance, cover them with fire, commit forces to it, have reserves up your sleeve. So just having fixed defences in and of themselves doesn't doesn't cut the mustard as far as the defence is concerned. But if Russia is withdrawing troops uh, from that area. So, you know, let's do some numbers. If the Western officials said about 20,000 came over the river, if 10,000 of them are being pushed up to the Donbass, I mean, that's, um, that's, that's not a huge number of troops left to cover a, quite a wide front. Does that mean the defences are good? Uh, the Western officials' view was that they are, they are um, old-fashioned, these defences, these fixed pieces of infrastructure, old-fashioned, static, but fit for purpose. So um, we will see. I mean, it's extremely unlikely, almost out of the question, that Ukraine would attempt to do an opposed river crossing in any in any force. There was suggestion that um, some Ukrainian troops have been seen on the left bank, the south side of, of the river, the Russian held side of, of the river. Um, they are probably small um, SF forces, special forces um, units probing, um, doing reconnaissance, seeing what's seeing what's out there. Extremely unlikely, and, and in fact, there is no evidence yet that there's any weight of numbers from Ukraine, the Ukrainian military across. Certainly, no heavy armor, artillery, anything like that, air defence, nothing like that on the on the south side. Elsewhere, sort of con- connected, obviously, um, we're asking about Wagner. They are number the Wagner troops thought to number in their thousands. 
mainly in the center, mainly around Bakhmut, as we've as we've talked about recently. And uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and to to an extent Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, who who have been very vocal in their opposition to the way Russia have been prosecuting this war in recent months. They've actually been they've publicly come out and supported this withdrawal, saying, um, you know, in my view, correctly that it, that it's the right thing to do militarily. It, it preserves combat power for another day. I mean, that's interesting from Prigozhin and Kadyrov. Prigozhin, who leads the the Wagner Group, Kadyrov, leader of the Chechen forces. Um, it suggests they've had. Um, I don't know. Can you twist their arms? But they've been brought under control to a degree by uh, by Moscow. Um, just two more, two more bits and pieces, tactical updates. Uh, so Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, General Mark Milley, he said the other day he was talking about casualty figures. He said that um, Russia had suffered about a hundred thousand, and and said Ukraine was a very a similar figure. And because we've been very, we have no figures, almost no figures at all on either side, um, and our. We have a degree of scepticism about the, the figures put out by the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. A healthy scepticism, I think. I don't think we're being derogatory there. And they have actually shown themselves to be um, fairly accurate, we think, throughout the course of this war. They're currently saying Russia has about, well, slightly over 80,000 killed, which standard metric being three or four times that number wounded. So a huge number of dead and wounded Russians. Mark Milley suggested 100,000 was about the, the right figure for Ukraine as well, which, which had a lot of people um, commenting on it. Western officials I spoke to today recognised those figures, said they're broadly accurate, but that Russia has suffered more fatalities. So largely suggesting Ukraine casualty figures are around the 100,000 level, but many more wounded. Obviously, being wounded can cover everything from from minor to to very very serious life-changing non you're not going to fight again you know off the battlefield injuries of course so um that is that is worth noting but it is it's also suggesting that they will have more of those fighters uh, ready to go back to the line at some point and just finally um the point was raised by my friend and colleague Shashank over at the the economist he was he was he had mentioned that um, Ukrainian military intelligence have recently said that Russia is thought to have only about 120 Iskander ballistic missiles left in their stocks, um, and that Russia has only about a month's worth of of artillery, dumb bomb artillery left. Um, both figures were quote in the right ballpark unquote said the uh, the Western official, with munitions being a, a massively limiting factor for both sides at the moment. So overall, the the, the message there from from the uh, from the Western official, and what we've kind of seen is that the that the con- the line of contact is very static. It's still very active, and bar the um, the withdrawal from Herzon, it really really isn't moving very far. Russia seemed to be bolstering the centre, the Donbass around Bakhmut. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some very small, limited advances there for Russia in the next few days, but nothing of operational and certainly not strategic significance, I would suggest. But a very static um, line, an an ordered withdrawal, um, a capable withdrawal, a capable plan executed by Russia to get out of of Herzon, which might speak of of a... of a maturity that uh, the new General Sorovkin, uh, the new head of Russia's armed forces, has brought to the Kremlin. Again, I'm suggesting that's not that's not brilliant news for Ukraine. Uh, but again, as we as we go into winter, no suggestion that things are going to slow down here. Um, in fact, when it comes to winter, that, that what is going to change is the um, 
is the casualty figures. I think the the, the average temperature now is about well, it's just it's in the in the sort of low double digits in the middle of winter. The average temperature is going to be about zero, and so that golden hour, the, what the military call a golden hour, that point from wounding to being under um, in some kind of surgical facility, um, th- that's called the golden hour. That's going to or, or sorry the the golden hour is the is the is the you need treatment in that time to have the best possible chance of success. So if you are able to get to some form of surgical facility, that is the, your your best chance. We achieved it in Afghanistan and Iraq partly because of because of practice, um, which was terrible, but also because of the, the the smaller geography we were dealing with, the much larger area of Ukraine and um, the much higher casualties. That golden hour is, is is sorely tested at the moment, and and that will come under. Uh, I mean, people don't put a figure on it, but you can imagine, for the sake of this analogy, that the time that someone's going to stay alive after being badly wounded is going to be much, much more reduced as the temperature drops. So going into winter with largely static lines, but a a lot of things moving, not least of which um, Russian ammunition stocks, and they're moving down. I'll take a pause there. Well, thank you very much, Tom, for that. That was incredibly comprehensive. Joe Barnes, uh, the Telegraph's foreign correspondent. You're in Odessa at the moment, but yesterday uh, you had a rather extraordinary day down in Hassan. Um Talk us through your day. What what happened? What did you see? Hi, folks. Um, I will give you a slight word of warning. I might have to shoot off at some point because this uh, air raid siren seems to be fairly uh, serious with the whole country kind of under warning. Um, I'm kind of sitting kind of in the hallway of my hotel at the moment, so I'll kind of stay there for now. Um, but no, so Herson, um we travelled down. It was kind of a, a coach trip uh, with kind of hundreds of international journalists and their teams kind of bust down to Herson from Mikolaev, and you cross through a sort of no-man's land. Um, oh, and it looks like... Sorry, I'm just going to stop there just to give you some live context. It looks like there has been some explosions in Kiev. Um, so we'll try and get you the latest news on that as soon as possible. Um, but no, back to Herson. We were we were kind of we met in Mykolaiv, which is the closest kind of city, and it was a main hub for Ukrainian forces before Herson and that bank of the Dnipro River was liberated last week. Um, and we were driven through kind of these winding country roads uh, through recently liberated villages and kind of little farm towns because the main highway, the bridge on that had been blown up during the recent fighting. Um, and on on that, on your way to Herson City, you're kind of given these constant reminders of the fact that the region has been kind of a main hot spot for fighting. There was kind of abandoned Russian foxholes, uh, dugouts that had been left behind. You can see kind of Russian ammunition boxes still littered around, um, whether they've been used or had stuff in them, we didn't We didn't see. Um, farmhouses and buildings on route had been completely smashed to, and torn and ripped to shreds. Uh, there was burnt-out fighting vehicles, some so damaged you couldn't tell if they were Russian or Ukrainian. Um and then as, as we arrived in Herson itself, uh, you kind of got a sense of what it had been like without even being able to speak to anyone under occupation. There were these these posters and billboards and you kind of saw people uh, putting up these high ladders to rip off what had been left of Russian propaganda. Posters saying, 
uh, Ukrainians and Russians are the same nation uh, saying things like her son is Russian forever. And there were people, um, Ukrainians, Hersonites, clambering up these really high ladders to basically scrub away kind of the remnants of of the Russian propaganda left behind by the occupying forces. Um, the city itself is not actually not actually that damaged. It didn't see much major fighting um, at all. And uh, there, there are some remnants of kind of exploded uh, buildings like the courthouse near the city centre had been, the roof had been blown off um, and uh, other things like that. But it, well, it largely, you wouldn't have known that it had been kind of, you're in a in a in an area that had been kind of fought over at all. Um, in the centre, we got dropped off at this kind of now famous Freedom Square outside the Herson Region's main administrative main administrative uh, administration building. Sorry, um, and there were kind of legions of people, hundreds of people, and they were all kind of draped in the blue and yellow of, of the Ukrainian flag. These are these are images that we're we're all very used to used to seeing. Uh, by now, since the liberation, um, and we weren't sure why we were being bussed down there. We we weren't so we, we kind of as we we're being bussed down, we we saw behind us a huge kind of convoy, and it looked like a big VIP sort of cars, uh, special forces in 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 these big armored Land Rovers and Land Cruisers and four by four vehicles um, were behind us, and then and then suddenly a, a Ukrainian guy who spoke perfect English started shouting at the bus, going. You're going to miss the president. Run, run, run. And we all kind of go, we all looked at each other and a bit puzzled. And we, we realized that a mass of, of kind of these heavily armed uh, special forces soldiers, nothing, nothing like, I've not seen anything like, like that since I've, I've been here. The, the normal soldiers are, uh, are quite freely and openly have their, their faces showing. And, but these guys had American issue weapons, kind of, uh, kind of Western, Western rifles and, were, were big guys like they looked they looked highly professional and they had like basically created this cordon around the main uh, basically a platform that had almost been made at a stage like area and then out walks Vladimir Zelensky and he he walks up he's shaking soldiers hands and then suddenly the the national anthem starts starts playing and he's basically presiding over what is a a flag raising ceremony uh for her son and newly liberated her son and then he comes up and he addresses he addresses the crowd, the gathered crowds, the soldiers that are gathered there as well, and he uh, and 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 basically the world media that had uh, been bust in to to witness this kind of uh, this address by the president of Ukraine, and he 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 kind of went along. He he thanked the soldiers for their hard work. He he said that this moment of liberation was the beginning of the end of the war. So he, he kind of staked it as a as a huge moment in the. In the entirety of the war, kind of nearly nine months in, and uh, then he went on. He thanked the Americans for high Mars and said they played a massive part. He also mentioned he he, he found time for a, for a few jokes, which I find as a comedian quite refreshing. Um, he he was asked uh, by an American journalist, and he, the American journalist shouted together, "What's next, President Zelensky uh, or Mister President?" And <laughs> Zelensky just replied. Not Moscow. We're only interested in our own country. He was asked by a Ukrainian journalist, um, "Why did you come to visit Herson when it's clearly dangerous?" And he joked that, "Oh, I'm 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 coming because I wanted a watermelon." And the Herson region is famous for its its juicy watermelons, and lots of people were posing for pictures with watermelons 
yesterday and and so um, um but then once the kind of president Zelensky show had kind of moved on and rolled out of town he only spent about 10 minutes there um it, it gave me a chance to kind of walk through the crowd and speak to a lot of ukrainians and yes there was a lot of jubilation um lots of people were happy to see us um it was almost as if i don't know were we being confused for soldiers because we were we were walking around in our flak jackets and our helmets uh kind of close by because there was kind of ingoing, outgoing artillery fire. There was uh, loud explosions from sappers working in the area doing demining. Uh, so it, it kind of gave you the reminder that you are very close to the front line while in the centre of Herson. I think if you chart uh, a map like a, as a crow flies, you're, le- you're almost less than 10 kilometres away from where Russians are believed to have kind of moved some of their equipment after withdrawing against over the Dnipro. So, but people were generally happy. And there's a, there's a few stories that stick out in my mind. I uh, got speaking to a 76 uh, year old woman, Natalia, and she, she was obviously absolutely ecstatic that she had not, she'd hardly left her house for, for nine months, uh, basically out of fear of what the Russians might do or what, what the fear of just what's outside. She was in some sort of information vacuum. People in her son didn't know a great deal of what was going on apart from outside in the in the wider world um she she basically had only vision outside of what out of her front door out of her front windows because she she didn't want to leave when it wasn't necessary for fear of what might happen and and she eventually asked joe what happened uh, with the us midterm elections and i replied back going it looks like the democrats have edged it and she was like thank god that means we're going to get more weapons from the americans We've got the soldiers, but we need the weapons to carry on fighting the Ukraine, the Russians. Um, then you you bumped into other kind of younger people, and they they were purely there because Herson has been without phone signal and internet connection for a long period of time. But the Ukrainian authorities had moved in this kind of mobile phone mast, uh, kind of a temporary beacon of of information and kind of. And uh, they brought in generators and like, dozens and dozens of people were huddled over plugs while texting or telegramming, as Ukrainians do, their family outside of Kherson and trying to get information. Um, but it was, it, was, it was very much like a, it was a, a party-like uh, atmosphere there. Um, everyone, even if it was the third day of celebrations, everyone was still very buoyed and jubilant from that moment of liberation. And they were, they were excited for what's next. They didn't... Um, there was obviously concerns about the Russians being close, stories of uh, pro-Russian collaborators still operating in the area, stories of Russian soldiers who had kind of missed the, missed the boats across the Dnipro and decided to abandon their, their kind of un- uniforms and move into civilian clothes and hide in the general population until they can find their own way out. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting town, and I'll, I'll kind of stop there and uh, wonder if you've got any questions. Well, that was amazing. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, just a couple. Did you hear much about what um, the civilians there spoke about, what life under occupation was like? I mean, you mentioned Natalia, you know, scared to go outside um, and had barely been outside since since uh, Hassan had been taken. Um, did, did you hear any stories or any? did you have any impressions about um, about what life was like for the people who were left there while the Russians were in control? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. There's obviously plenty of that. And you, you asked... Um people couldn't move freely they couldn't they had to constantly look over their back um one of the most notable things is i think this is why so um our local fixer eugene is actually from herson and we're, me and him are writing a he's uh, he's doing a bit of a first person account of his trip back to his hometown um and he said before the war people didn't often speak to each other they didn't smile at each other 
But now suddenly you arrive in Herson and everyone is all kind of hugs, handshakes, speaking to each other, wanting to smile at each other. Um, and that is because they've lived under this kind of atmosphere, this this kind of rule under Russian occupation, where you can't, anyone you don't know, you can't trust them because are they working for the Russians? Uh, are they going to kind of tell the Russians that you might have some serving members of the military or Ukrainian military in your family or that uh, we met we met a, a chap uh, called Mikolai who had buried his Ukrainian flag uh, in the garden of his house under a grapevine because um, he knew that the Russian military would likely come knocking on his door because his son had served in the Donbass war in 2014. So it was it was it was a, a kind of it was a a heightened sort of fear and anxiety of, of the unknown essentially because you don't know what the Russians are going to do to you uh, at that point. We heard stories of kind of whether it be um, kind of indiscriminate beatings in the street because someone had like kind of was just out walking and couldn't tell the Russians why they were out walking. Um, the lack of food, the lack of medicine, um, the lack of the lack of money. Eventually, we met Tatiana who worked in the local bank. And she worked under the uh, behind the cash desk, and she basically Russians would turn up with guns, asking to withdraw money. Um, she said they didn't try and rob rob the bank, but they said they would demand money, which she wasn't allowed to give to them. Um, they would then come back in civilian clothes and try again, and kind of these. There was um, Chechen soldiers eventually moved into into the town, and they would stand outside loiter in in the main high street, meaning people were too scared to leave their home leave their homes and kind of come across these unpredictable Chechen soldiers who were often described as drunk um, while carrying guns and various other bits of ammunition on them. So it's, it's, it's the stories of Herson aren't too dissimilar from where we've, we've heard from the likes of Butcher, from Erpin and uh, from other kind of recently liberated towns elsewhere. It's, it's one of living in the unknown and not wanting to basically confront the reality of what are, some dangerous, unpredictable Russian soldiers uh, that will stop you, and they will search you, or they will rob you. They will, they will kind of destroy and loot, loot property. Um, uh, often, the they break away soldiers from the uh, the next and Luhansk regions are described as um, are described as living like pigs in in pigsties and certain areas that they've taken over. So it's 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 basically one of fear. It's, it's hard to describe because they're, 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 all the stories are very much well known. It's but I, I think what's intriguing is is the fact that people in Herson they couldn't live a normal life without knowing is their Ukrainian next door neighbour are they a pro Russian collaborator are they going to to essentially grasp me up for being a Ukrainian um, I'm having to hide my Ukrainian flags everywhere because I know um, but then I, I suppose one 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 lady I spoke to her name I think Ina Ina uh, briefly slipped my mind. Um, she spoke about the fact of because they were living in an information bubble, they didn't know Ukraine were coming back for them. They, they, they were people were scared that the Ukrainians had almost abandoned them. And I think that was one thing President Zelensky has been keen to stress in in recent days is that Ukraine never gave up on Herson, just like Herson never gave up on Ukraine, and the rest of Ukraine shouldn't shouldn't give up on on its uh, occupied territories because we're coming back for you. Just one more question from me, uh, Joe. I believe you, you must be one of the first Telegraph correspondents who's got quite close to Zelensky. What were your impressions of, of him? Um, yeah, I was. I can. Um, I will. I will try and share a picture on Twitter when I 
retweet the podcast and the spaces later. He's a small guy. He is. Um, he's really small. And he was surrounded by these kind of really burly special forces and uh, often hidden behind them, uh, uh, hidden behind these special forces troops because he is so small. But he's, he's powerful. He, speak, he speaks remarkably good English because um, a lot of obviously the, the traveling press pack were Americans. They were Brits. They were they were English speaking journalists. Um, and <laughs> he spoke remarkably good English. He's, he's, he's funny. He's a comedian. He's but he's he's almost he is quite. He he can hold a crowd. He can hold an audience. But one one thing I will mention is, and uh, in, in the disappointed visit uh, in today's paper, he wasn't the star of the show. Um, for the Ukrainians that gathered in that square, it was the, the the Ukrainian soldiers were the stars of the show. They they were the real heroes. Obviously, everyone's everyone was delighted to see Zelensky. They were happy and kind of jubilant for the, the and thankful for his kind of work and making sure Ukraine returned to her son. But it's actually the um, the guys that did the fighting are the, are the are the true heroes of the of the story of the liberation. And you saw um, if you if you see online and you see the piece that I've done, uh, Colin Freeman, uh, one of our correspondents, was also with us. He was um, on the trip, and he's done something about what it was like to live in in the bubble of information and live under Russian occupation. I urge you to all, all read on the website today. Um, people were, were throwing kind of handmade bouquets of flowers at these soldiers. There was. There was little children throwing themselves at the soldiers for hugs. Um, and one of the things I quite liked was um, everyone was taking their Ukrainian flags around to be signed by these soldiers as as if they were like sports stars. I've only ever seen that at kind of um, football matches or cricket matches where people are clam- clamouring for kind of the autographs of their of their of their sporting heroes. Um, but now the these soldiers are, are really truly truly kind of heroes, the Ukrainian people, and and they were definitely the stars of the show yesterday. Well, thank you so much, Joe. Um, I know that Dom has a few uh, questions and then we'll move to Gabriella. Just a couple, if I may. Hi, Joe. Great to hear from you. Um, fantastic work. Great, great stories I've uh, read this morning. Could you give us a little feel for what it's like reporting there? Give us a feel for the travelling press pack. How controlled are you? Are, are you taken to fixed sites and then people sort of pushed in front of you to, to interview? How much freedom do you have to wander around and look, look for things yourself and ask, ask anyone anything uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, just go wherever you like? Um, so that is the first kind of organised press trip I've been on while in Ukraine this uh, kind of this month and last month, and um, I must admit, uh, once it was getting hectic because uh, obviously Erson is the story that the world's media wants to cover, um, Ukraine's media wants to cover it. It's, it's, it is kind of the massive, it's a massive story. So there was absolutely hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of journalists uh, turned up, and I'm sure some were disappointed. There was standing room only on the bus, uh, so. Um, I was I was left without a seat, but I not one to complain. As we're going down these rather bumpy roads, and you're kind of you've not got any rooms. You've got your your protective gear on, and it's getting increasingly hot. But that's that's not the point. Um, we were we were dropped off, and we were basically told, "Look, the president's there. Go and see him if you want. But if not, meet us back at the buses at half past one and go and go and explore the city. Go and go and have a look." So I I, I, I largely stayed around the main square, but I knew people who had a wander down and. Or got taxis down to the Dnipro River to kind of see where the new front line of the of the war in Ukraine is. Um, so this one was pretty chilled out, and and we weren't having people thrust in front of us. Um, you'd be surprised. I, I, I often laugh, laugh and joke that Ukrainian people seem quite media trained. We had we had um, 
like the, they they give these fantastic quotes and they can they can re- retell a story fantastically. But I, I, I guess that's just because they want to speak. They want to they want the world to know about the horrors they've lived under, and they want to show how appreciative they are to kind of the West for coming uh, to their aid at a time in their time of need, and show their appreciation for the, the Ukrainian soldiers and their politicians making sure that that's possible. So um, on this particular trip, it was fairly it was fairly relaxed, but. I'm sure in, in, in the future, other trips will be more organised and they will try and thrust uh, certain certain officials and politicians in front of you. Thanks, Joe. And just one final one for me. I mean, it is it is by no means a given that Russia won't immediately try to consolidate and, and, and push a, a counter-offensive back across the river. Almost certainly not not going to happen. However, can't can't be guaranteed. So did you get an impression of, of a huge military infill around you as you were stood there? Was the area being swamped by troops? Was there a lot of activity in the in the air, or so helicopters and what have you? Did you get the feeling that, that this was... I mean, I thought it was amazing that President Zelensky went so early after the liberation of the city, but it is still fingertip stuff, I, I, would, I would suggest, in these early days after the Russian withdrawal. So did you get a feeling that, that, that Ukraine were really pushing to, to get, get forces in there to hang on to, hang on to the city and establish a deep, deep defensive line? Uh, yes, let's just say it was, it, was, it was a lot busier militarily than other places that we'd visited. Um, it's the closest to the, the front line I've been on this trip. Um, it's not often that you can get within uh, well, ten, less than 10 kilometres of where the Russians are. Um, the sound of artillery, um, it probably would have, you would have been better placed to tell tell the listeners whether it had been outgoing, ingoing, or grad fire, or 152 or 155 uh, artillery systems, but it was very active. There was explosions all day. It was very, very loud. Um as we were on the bus on the way out, you could noticeably see areas where kind of artillery had landed. There was uh, kind of plumes of black smoke were kind of emerging from the the, the flat kind of landscape of, of the fields around the Herson region. And as we kind of edged back towards Mikolaev. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a very active, active zone. I think both sides seem like they've got their kind of ducks in a line and in order. And they're, they're both kind of digging in and, Making sure they've got the resources to uh, to position themselves uh, where needed, but um, it, it almost seems that uh, Ukraine are still on the counteroffensive. We've got kind of early reports from Nova Kohovka, which is uh, you might know it as the town on the Dnipro where there is a huge ele- hydroelectric dam, um, hydroelectric dam there and uh, that is apparently the ukrainian flag has been flown over that for the first time and there are even uh, even kind of reports that ukrainian troops might be operating on the left bank of the dnipro and they might be uh, edging back as russia moves probably closer to crimea but as of yesterday the fighting seems fairly intense there's lots of ingoing and outgoing artillery fire and i suspect that the south of ukraine will be a kind of a, a hot spot in this war for a long time to come well, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Dom, for your questions. We're just getting some more very early reports from Kyiv. We think Kyiv, the, the, the capital city of Ukraine, has been hit by a massive missile strike. We think there's been about four explosions at least. One apartment building has been hit as well. So we'll try and get you more details before the end of the space as they come in. Um, can we turn to welcome our guest, um, Gabriela Yushviak? Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work in Ukraine uh, in the last year? 
Hi, yeah, thank you very much for having me today. So um, I'm a freelance journalist and I mainly write about disadvantaged children um, in the UK or usually in low-income countries. Um, But at the beginning of this year, I was um, encouraged to apply for a fellowship uh, at a project called the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma, which is housed at the Columbia Journalism School in New York. Um, And that was specifically focusing on early childhood reporting. Um, Now, this is something that often gets left out of, um, well, of of all reporting, really, because it's very hard to interview children aged from babies to six. Obviously, lots of them can't talk. They don't give very good sound bites. Um, So they're not very helpful when they're trying to find out kind of what life is like for them or how they're experiencing something. Um, But the DART project um, is all about trying to promote ethical reporting of violence, conflict and tragedy. So it seemed to me obvious that we would need to be looking at what was going on in Ukraine when the war started in February. Um, So I applied to to them to go to Ukraine um, and to meet children and families and to try and spot um, symptoms of stress and trauma and try and kind of get a sense of what the impact of the war has been like for them um, and for their parents and carers and think about what things might look like for them in the future. Um, so one thing that we've been doing on this project is we've received quite a lot of training um, about early childhood brain development, which is a really helpful way to try and understand what's going on for young children who can't speak. And um, although it's obviously impossible to predict how a child will develop or what will happen to them, it's very logical and there's plenty of research to show that children who experience adverse adversity in early life will go on to have problems as they get older. Um, and actually, if you look at the science of the brain, um, children aged from zero to six, they have this massive um, period of brain development where the brain will actually physically grow and the experiences that, that they endure or you know if they have bad experiences they can actually develop their brain in a way that's irreversible um so some of the things we could say could say that might happen to young children like the children in ukraine who have obviously experienced lots of stress and trauma is that when they grow older they might have behavioral problems they might show signs of violence they might have problems forging relationships they might engage in more risky behavior It's possible that they might develop more psychiatric disorders, um, engage in substance abuse, self-harm, or more likely to attempt suicide. Um, They will potentially have decreased cognitive functions. So it's not just the fact that their education is disrupted, but just the negative experiences that they've had would mean that they they can't actually learn in the same way. Um, And actually, there are... Um, studies that show that in adulthood um, some illnesses or chronic conditions, things like asthma or kidney disease or obesity have been linked to adverse experiences in childhood. So um, of course the other thing that children can develop is post-traumatic stress disorder and those are the children that will need some proper intervention with a specialist sort of long term. Um, yeah, so I went to <laughs> I went to Lviv which is a city 70 kilometres from the Polish border in, in Ukraine. And I went there in June last year to go and meet as many children and families as I possibly could to try and see if I could find out um, where, what was going on for them, really, and how they were experiencing the war. And I met 
lots of children who were already living in Lviv when the war broke out. Um, so they, a lot of them had just stayed there. Um, but I also met lots and lots of children who had fled from the um, eastern territories and were now displaced and living in Lviv. Um, I'm sure that the listeners know that lots and lots of, well, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that were fleeing the the east stopped in Lviv and stayed there and didn't continue on to leave the country. So that's one of the cities with the highest population of displaced people in Ukraine. Well, thank you so much for that. Can you sort of uh, colour in a little bit the, the lives of the people you spoke to? Can you tell us a few of their stories? You know, what, what did they tell you? Um, could you bring up some case studies for us? I, I guess that's what I'm asking. Yeah, sure. Um, well, just, just to start, I just wanted to say that um, before the war, there were 7.5 million children in the country. Um, and then according to UNICEF statistics, 2 million children left the country by March. So they went to live in other, other parts of Europe or even further. And then there's 2.5 million children that have been internally displaced, inter- internally displaced, which is some of the ones I just mentioned. So, yeah, so when I was in Lviv, um, one of the first visits I did was to a preschool, a kindergarten. Um, Ukraine has a really established system for children aged from two to six to all attend um, preschool all day, five days a week. It's all state funded. Um, there are also some private kindergartens. And actually the private kindergartens are the ones that... Um, were able to open sooner in some cases than the state kindergartens. I went to visit a private kindergarten in Lviv, and um, generally in June, um, you know, the situation for those children had changed. There were sandbags, um, obviously, up against all the windows, and they'd had to reorganise the way that they delivered their care for the children. So the children had all been trained to respond to the air alarms and to filter down to the basement as fast as possible and stay there until the alarm is finished. Um, they had taught the children to do this using fairy stories. So one teacher told me a story about a wolf which um, howls to its pack when there's danger. So when the siren went off, they would all talk about the wolf and the sound of the howling and go down. And and Solomia Boykovic, who was the woman who founded this kindergarten, which is called Ptashenya, she was saying that, that, that they responded very well to this, um, that they'd adapted well. Um, then there were some children there who had come from other territories. They may, rather than evacuating on a train, they'd, they'd actually been brought kind of in a more orderly fashion by parents who'd, who had some contacts in Lviv and they were living there now. And they were, they were going to this kindergarten. And these children were showing slightly more symptoms of trauma. So there was some who'd left their fathers behind or who, whose fathers had joined the military. Um, and these children were occasionally presenting that kind of behaviour that suggests something's going wrong. So they're not able to um, respond to instructions or they're crying a lot more easily or um, in one case um, that, you know, there's children that are picking up things on the floor and turning them into guns and swords and fighting a lot more than usual. I'm just trying to think of a, a specific example for you. Um, I've, got, I've got some more specific examples that come later actually if that's okay but I can move on to talking about the internally displaced children. So as well as the preschools, there was obviously lots and lots of families that were now living in these modular villages, um, which are housing that was built by the Polish government. They're kind of shipping container-sized homes that you can fit four people into, and they've got them all stacked up in rows, and they have a separate toilet block and a community sort of room where people can cook. And there are several of these now in Lviv, some in parks, 
Um, so in these places, you can imagine the situation was quite intense. You've got families kind of crammed together um, and children all sharing these tiny spaces. And that's where I met um, Vanya and Nazar, her little brother. So Vanya was 14 and Nazar was four. And they had um, fled there from Heson. Um It had been a very traumatic journey for them. They'd had to cross that Dnipro River by boat and then go by by um, sort of by car. They just found someone that could drive them part of the way. Then they got on a train and then they had to get a bus and then they were in the view for a while, like sleeping on a floor somewhere. And then finally they got given this, this temporary home. Um, but at th- that time in June, um, Vanya was telling me that the thing she really wanted to do more than anything was go back to school. She knew she couldn't go back home. She knew she couldn't go back to her little village. She knew she couldn't see her friends. Um, so she just wanted to have something that was slightly more like normal life and some routine, go back to school, find a school in Lviv and start studying again so that she could um, complete what she needed to learn to do her, her final school exams. But she was also busy looking after her little brother. Her mum was volunteering, kind of cooking in a kitchen at this place, trying to help other people. But her dad was in the military and three times he'd called the family to tell them that he'd nearly been killed that day and described in quite a lot of detail what had happened to her, to him, sorry. So you can imagine this girl hasn't got much to do. She's just hanging around really in the summer, waiting for something to start, something like normal life to start again, looking after her brother with all these thoughts going around her head, trying to support her mum. And yeah, she, you know, she, she was older. She was able to explain all this to me. And her little brother was in the same situation and he, he couldn't talk and explain what was going on, but he was also kind of just just stuck in this place, playing with these toys that had been donated by other people. Um, if I can move on. Um, please, please. Yeah. Okay, then um, I also went to visit an orphanage um, in Lviv and this is the most sort of shocking um, examples of children that I saw, the, the young children. They're actually... Uh, children there that had been evacuated um, from Lysychansk and that evacuation happened right at the beginning on the 25th of February um, the orphanage owner in that area had, had instructed um, one of the carers to just quickly board a train and take the children across to this other orphanage in Lviv and these children, they, they told me that these children actually, their parents hadn't died, they'd all been removed from their care because the parents had alcohol or drug addiction problems um, so that group had come over together so they kind of had some sense of unity but the woman that was looking after them was really 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 stressed out like she really didn't want to be there she'd been forced to go with them she'd left behind her own daughters and her grandchildren she was living in the orphanage she had no space to herself and she was in tears in front of these children explaining her situation to me um, which is really is really bad for children because if that's the one adult who's caring for those children they need to be turning to somebody who's stable and calm and giving them the impression that everything's going to be okay whereas she was really falling to pieces which is understandable um there was also one boy in that room who really really shocked us because as soon as we walked in he just started asking us over and over again um do you know where my mum is do you know where my mum is over and over again and this little boy was four and they told us that his, his mum had actually evacuated him from the east as well, herself, and later been found drunk on a bench. So the police took the boy and brought him to the orphanage, and that had happened three weeks earlier, and he hadn't seen his mum since then. 
Um, and what was really worrying about this boy's behaviour was that he, he basically latched onto my translator and clung to her neck and cried and wouldn't let go. And I really think if, if she had walked out of that room, he would have quite happily gone with her. Like he'd formed no attachment at all to the caregivers in that orphanage, which is really worrying. That really means that, that he has no one to turn to. And one thing that young children really need is, is an adult. So if something's going wrong, they turn around, they see the adult. The adult looks at them and gives them the signal that everything's OK, then the children are OK. But if the children are just isolated and alone like that, then, then they are going to develop those, those adverse trauma-induced toxic stress symptoms that I was describing at the beginning that means you know, that that boy is is going to have problems in the future um so that was really really distressing um and finally I was just going to say that I also went to visit a preterm baby unit at the Lviv General Hospital um because obviously babies are also part of the story um the babies that I met there had all been born in traumatic circumstances um, either because of pregnancy complications, which you know probably maybe could have been induced by the war. These mums were under severe stress. Some of them had also fled from eastern territories. They had been living in basements for weeks. Um, they'd come to this place, and when the baby was born, they'd had to quickly move the babies underground. They'd had to move the entire... Um, intensive care unit into the basement of this hospital because obviously you can't move babies and incubators up and down the stairs during air raid alarms. So there was two quite small rooms sort of packed with, with mothers and babies that couldn't even sit down. There was no space for them to sit down. The mothers, some of them so traumatised by whatever had happened to them in their own kind of in the war situation plus a, a difficult delivery plus being separated from their families now because there was no space at the hospital for their other children or their partners all standing there all day under the glare of lights in a room with a ventilator but quite stuffy um, no natural light because the windows were all being blocked out by sandbags and the staff really doing their best to try and support these these mothers and the babies but that stress when the mother does get passed on to the baby so even from that baby's first moment, first breath, even perhaps before it's been born, there is research to show that the stress can get passed on in utero and that baby already might be on a path that's more negative than it might have been if this war had never happened. Thank you very much, Gabby. This is ex- extremely moving and, and quite terrifying, really, for the future of some of these people. Um, can I ask, we've talked a lot about the, the, the situation on the ground now, you know, heading into winter, what that might mean in a, in a military, in a, in a, in, for, for the military, what it might mean diplomatically, where Ukraine stands now. Um, what does it mean for um, the people, your contacts, people you're, you're talking to? What, what are their biggest challenges at the moment? And, and, and also, what can be done? What, what do they need? What do they need from the world? Um, yeah, well, the, the winter coming is a really big concern, and I think this is something that the Ministry of Science and Education is mainly focusing on at the moment. Um, I've heard some teachers have told me that they might um, decide to close schools earlier because there's just no way of heating them um, over the winter months, so they, they won't have a kind of half-term break in the autumn, and they'll close earlier. Um, now, that's not good for children. Um, I was talking to a teacher called Svetlana Bosko, who lives in Lviv, she teaches 13 to 14 year olds and she was telling me how since the 1st of September when the children have gone back to school, how different it is for them to see their peers and how much happier they are when they get to go into school and see each other. Um, now most schools in the um, east of the country 
are operating on a kind of one week offline, one week online structure. So they can come in for one week, half of the school, um, and see each other and have face-to-face teaching. And then the next week they're at home doing online learning. And that's because the schools need to have um, enough space to evacuate all the children into basements if an alarm goes off. Um, So in the winter months... You know, at the moment, they're getting sort of fifty percent of contact time. But in the winter months, if they shut the schools, they just go purely online. They will have no contact at all, apart from perhaps outside of school. But then, if you think about the rest of the country and the, the regions we've been talking about this morning, I mean, all those areas—they never got to go back to school. They've been doing online learning ever since September started. Um, they're missing out on all that kind of face-to-face contact and contact with their friends from the beginning. Um, I did want to say as well that. Um, the atmosphere in Lviv has changed a lot since th- those attacks that happened on the 10th of October. So although that what I saw when I was in Lviv in June, that things were quite calm, the children were dealing quite well with air raid alarms. Now that the children have actually experienced what it is really like to hear bombs going off and see smoke and see fire. Um, so this teacher I spoke to, Svetlana, told me they're much more scared now. They're much more nervous. Um, they're much more jumpy when they hear loud noises. Um, and of course, the other thing that they're dealing with um, across the country are these power outages, whether they're planned or unplanned. Um, that's really stressing children out because they are, like I said, they like to be online with their teachers. They like to see their friends. There's no power. They can't have their lessons. Um, it sort of removes that slight structure and slight certainty that they've had since September of having this the schools back on again. Um I also wanted to mention that since the alarm is going on right now in the country, that all children currently in the country, including preschool children, will be in, a, in an area shelter right now. And if this alarm keeps going on, imagine how you're going to keep them entertained. The teachers are getting really exhausted. They say that for the first hour, you can just about keep a child happy, but the second hour is getting harder and harder. They try and deliver lessons sometimes, but otherwise they just try and play games. Sometimes now there's no power during the um, during an air raid alarm, so they're all sitting in the dark with torches. Um, it's also very cold in some of these basements. Some of them haven't got heating or they haven't switched it on. And that's only going to get worse as the winter goes on. Um, also, another thing to add to this is back at the preschool that I was talking about, the woman who runs it, um, Solomia, has also been planning for a nuclear attack, which obviously... We have heard um, Dom talking about last week that it seems unlikely that will happen. But schools are preparing for this nonetheless. So they've been asking parents to pack backpacks um, with extra clothes. And they've also been stockpiling like tape and blankets to seal up windows if there's an attack. They've been buying potassium iodide, hermetically sealed water bottles. And they've given parents instructions, which is if this happens, they should not to come to collect their children but wait until the all clear is given however long that might take because they're planning to seal up the school buildings if this happens which you can imagine is absolutely terrifying for any parent um but they just have to get on with it um but yeah sorry you were saying what can we do about it what's the next step yes so it's very difficult to plan ahead because um no one knows what will happen um People are living day by day there, children are living day by day. We've just talked about the winter in the short term. Yeah, they can try and plan for that. Um, But in the long term, um, we're just, I guess, they're just trying to 
keep people going really and keep people motivated so I've heard a lot um, so there's an organisation called Teach for Ukraine which um, trains new teachers in, in schools and they are trying to hold webinars for teachers to keep teachers motivated and to give them a, a space where teachers can share the stresses and strains that they're going through and help them keep positive and energised for looking after children um, so I'm just trying to think of an example I, I was listening to an example from Borodyanka which is a town north of Kiev um, that was heavily bombed back at the beginning of the war and the school there was completely destroyed um, so since then people have been going in and seeing what the situation is and apparently there the teachers are very demoralised and very lacking in motivation um, they don't have any electric devices so they're finding it hard they can't basically do online teaching apparently in the summer some teachers were going from house to house and trying to deliver some lessons in people's gardens or in their houses or maybe somebody had a telephone like a mobile phone and they were getting groups of five children to sit around one mobile phone while a teacher tried to do some sort of online learning um, so one thing that, um, that that could help is to try and improve connectivity and try and improve the number of devices that children have. That will help the older children. That's not going to help the little children that I was talking about earlier. Um, online doesn't really work for them, but for the older children, if they can keep connected online, if they can keep learning with their teachers, that will give them a bit more structure, a bit of um, something to look forward to. The government has actually been handing out devices to teachers. Um, I think it's... It's had a partnership with UNESCO that's been handing out devices um, just this month, so that's been helpful. But I, that's something that people might be able to help with. Um, but mainly, whenever I ask people, you know, what can we do here in, in the West, what can we do to help, people just say to me, just don't forget us. There's a real sense when I talk to teachers and parents there that, that people are losing interest in this war, that it's been going on for such a long time. Um, and they just just really want people to keep talking about it keep trying to convince other countries that maybe don't believe what's going on that this is really happening um, and then I guess practically the only thing we can do is keep supporting those charities that do send out aid especially in winter, they're going to need a lot of warm clothes and they're going to need more food um, yeah and we just hope that things can get better for them as fast as possible because obviously the longer this goes on the worse that, that traumatic effect is for those children well, thank you very much, Gabby. Just very quickly before, I know, I know Joe Barnes has a few questions, if that's all right, but you, you mentioned uh, certain charities. Uh, do you have any in mind? I th- I'm sure our listeners would be very interested. Um, well, obviously, UNICEF is a big one, and, the, and UNICEF has these mobile units that um, go... They've actually just made 20 new mobile units to go into the east, and they're going to go into Hassan. And I was talking to... Um, Roman Kravetsk, who works for them in Lviv, and he was saying that you know they're really concerned about what they're going to find there. That's kind of a new area for them, so it can always NH UNICEF. There are smaller charities on the ground that I worked with, so there's one called Women's Perspectives, which is supporting um, refugees and children. They're providing accommodation for them in the Lviv region and also um, psychological support for them. Um, I'm trying to think. There are so many. Um, perhaps I could give you a list and we could tweet it out later or something. I'm sure we can do that. Um, thank you so much for that, Gabby. Joe, I know you said you, you, you had a question. Uh, yeah, hi, Gabby. Uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, yeah, it's quite moving and quite touching. But it's, it's, it's uh, kind of an experience I can share with, with you because it's been one of the main questions that I've asked while I've been in Ukraine and visited uh, towns and cities that have kind of been blighted by the war. Um, and I'm just wondering if you kind of have any figures or numbers or insight kind of 
into the fact of how many children in Ukraine are actually able to access the remote learning um and is that is that so, cause I, I was in Kharkiv the other day and I was speaking with a, a charity and they 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 said they'd basically raise money and been able to buy 200 laptops for local children because a lot of their a lot of the um children in, in that area of Kharkiv had been basically forced to attend classes on their parents mobile phones because they they didn't have laptops because we kind of while in the UK during covid and uh, you kind of take that for granted that kids in the UK have access to to laptops, to iPads, to different tablet devices, and so. But Ukraine just isn't isn't as wealthy in certain areas. It's in certain areas it's very rural, and internet access is is not is not great. So I was just wondering if you have any kind of numbers or insight into the kind of the amount of children actually losing out on on education as a result of the war. Yeah. Um, so. Before September, the Ministry of Education, actually it was in July, it published this really fantastic piece of research, which I thought was incredible considering the circumstances. It did a really big survey of need in the sector and um, it had a figure that said it needed to provide 203,000 tablets and 1,650,000 laptops to pupils. Um, I don't think anywhere near that number of things has been provided. Um Again, like my contact in Lviv with UNICEF, one particular modular village, the one in um, Sihi, which is a district of Lviv, he told me that they'd worked with a small Polish foundation that had donated some tablets to some of the children that were living there. Um, when I speak to the teachers, so Svetlana that I mentioned, another one with Mila, another teacher, she told me that, that the children don't have tablets, they, they have phones. Um, they're all sitting there with a phone in front of them. And... I mean, that that's really uncomfortable. I don't know how much face-to-face... When, when I say face-to-face, -face, I don't know how much live learning they're doing. I think often, especially with the power outages, they're just posting tasks for the children, giving them some time to do it, and then coming back online, having a little chat. Um, but obviously, if the power is off for sort of two or three hours a day, they're having to work around that or plug in these, these, um, these devices to get them charged up in time. And if the children can't do it, then they just, you know, they have to accept that, but they can't kind of get angry with them. They, but they're falling behind, technically, really behind on the curriculum now. Um, but you're right, sorry, just to go back to what you're saying about in the East, I mean, yeah, they don't have them. Um, I don't know what the, the... I went back to the ministry and I tried to find out some up-to-date stats on coverage, um, but they, they haven't done that research. Um, they're, they're just too busy trying to do other things at the moment. Another thing I was told was that... Um, like, you know, the regional administration, the regional military administrations also um, have a role to play in the education sector. And I was told by um, by one person in Lviv that, that some money that she kn knows was due to, to be spent over a five-year stretch for a certain project has all been diverted to the military. So it it is and it isn't a priority. That Obviously, the priority is winning the war. So there isn't money to spend on a tablet or a device for a child all they can do is reach out to the to the national community and try and get it um but they i don't think they can afford to buy it themselves well thank you very much um gabby thank you joe and thank you dom for for your questions i uh, would starting to run a little bit over time unfortunately um just a quick update we're hearing more from 
uh, Ukraine in terms of this massive missile strike. We think two apartment buildings in Kiev have been hit. We just must emphasize we're, we're hearing this live. We're hearing that um, some buildings in Jotomir have lost electricity and water as well. So that, that attack is going on. And uh, Gabby, thank you for reminding us, of course, that at this moment, uh, Ukrainian school children will be, will be in, in the shelters and they won't be learning. Um, Dom, uh, Joe and, and Gabby, can I just ask for your final thoughts? And Joe, why, why, would you like to go first? Sure. Um, yeah, my, 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 my final thought would be just to um, share kind of how monumental these little victories are for Ukraine. And Kherson might be a relatively unknown sort of city, um, quite not insignificant, would be harsh. Um, it was once kind of a massive industrial hub, but it's it's kind of past its sell-by date, uh, some may say, um, on that. But it's given this huge kind of monumental boost to the country. And, and I, I know a lot of Ukrainians that haven't been to Kherson, but they've been kind of shedding tears of joy um, in watching from afar videos of um, of the of the liberation of soldiers arrived and flag-waving celebrations of President Zelensky in town yesterday as we visited. So it's just kind of, it's, it's moments like this that provide a little boost of kind of happiness and joy to Ukrainians when, when it is so hard uh, hard to find across the country at times. Um, and it also, I think it, it should serve as a reminder of um, to the Western countries that might be thinking of pulling uh, resources from Ukraine or maybe slowing down supplies of military aid. This, this, this Ukrainian army is, is, is still taking back. And I saw, I saw a figure the other day with Herson recaptured. It's um, Russia has lost 50% of the land in a, in a, in a couple of months that it had captured since February 24th. So it's quite an impressive feat by the Ukrainians. And I, I don't think we should uh, kind of doubt their perseverance to reclaim other parts of, of their country back from Russian control and have more celebrations like this to come. Thank you, Joe. Dom Nichols. Yeah, I'll just make, uh, I mentioned one thing, because I think we're going to hear more of it in, in days to come. So today, FIFA's president, Gianni Infantino, has called on world leaders at G20 to, uh, well, he says, put an end to all conflicts during the tournament, the World Cup that starts, um, starts in Qatar in uh, starts in Qatar on, on Sunday, so it's basically calling for a ceasefire um, for all conflicts. But hey, look, you know the lens is is uh, the war in Ukraine. He said, "My plea to all of you is to think on a temporary ceasefire for one month for the duration of the World Cup." Now, I, I just think we need to think about ceasefires and what they are, what they mean, and uh, in my view, why a ceasefire right now would not be good. Ceasefires are not unilaterally a good thing for for everybody they are not uh separate from the conflicts i know this sounds a bit a bit wonkish but i mean i want there to be a ceasefire as in i want russia to get out of the country end the war and, and get out of the country i want peace tomorrow but a ceasefire a temporary cessation of hostilities accepting that violence will start again in the future i don't think that's that's good right now it is not Ceasefires are not are not equal in as much as they don't. A ceasefire right now would not be as good or as bad for Ukraine as it is good or bad for Russia. It would be very good for Russia right now. They are going backwards. They are hurting. They need to reconstitute. They regenerate their fighting power, their fighters, and their equipment. Ukraine are tired. We know that. We know their forces have taken a lot of casualties, but they have the initiative. They are on the front foot diplomatically. They they're getting the weapon supplies. They are putting them into great to great effect so a ceasefire now would would not suit 
it would suit Ukraine in as much as it would save people's lives. Of course it would, civilians and military alike. However, relatively speaking, I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with my language here, relatively speaking, a ceasefire now would, would, would suit Russia better. So I, th- I just think we all need to have a little think about what we understand ceasefires to be and, and what effect they can have for both sides and for the conflict as a whole, which is going to continue after any ceasefire. And so as we hear, undoubtedly hear, more and more calls for, these cease- for, for a ceasefire up to the World Cup, through the World Cup, afterwards, we, we know what we're talking about. A ceasefire is very different from peace. Peace tomorrow? Yes, please. I'm all for that. Ceasefire? No, I really don't think that is in Ukraine's interest right now, as, as painful as that as that is. And and I say that knowing full well that that more people are, are going to die in the very near future because there is no ceasefire. But I think it's important to, to, to raise that point and for us all to think about it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.